We've entitled this morning's message, How People React to the Truth. We're in familiar territory, really, and it may seem redundant to you, but I'm going to tell you right now, you will see it over and over again in this account of John as well as throughout the Scripture. What is that? Jesus is teaching and people are confronted with divine truth. And the response of reading, for, for example, this morning, related to the nation of Israel, first of all, related specifically to Ezekiel, he was being sent without question as a prophet of God to speak the words of God, and he was warned ahead of time that the people, whether they listen or not, because they're rebellious, that isn't your job to worry about it. You just do what I've told you to do because people will not listen. Well, Jesus is teaching, and how will they respond to his teaching? Or as sometimes it's put, what will you do with Jesus? What will these people do with Jesus and his teaching? And before we get so far isolated from the text in our own thinking or application to us individually, this same principle that will come up over and over again in the scripture is the same thing that happens to every person starting with me. It's happening to you right now and to me. It happens every time someone gives a message from the Bible, rightly divided. It happens every time, without exception. The very fact that you hear, it happens. Whether it's coming from the pulpit, whether it's coming from a Sunday school class, a Bible teacher, whether it's you that's teaching, whether it happens in school, whether it happens in a message that you hear on the radio or an iPod, or whether you hear it or witness it on TV, whether you're watching it on the Internet, trying to cover some of the technology today, whatever it is, you and I, every single time, divine truth is presented are in the same situation that we're looking at right here. Not just unbelievers. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Others listen, and they do the same thing. The context here is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's from verse 37, where we left off last time. And Jesus Christ has just dramatically, as I tried to present it last week, dramatically presented to them who he is. That he is the source of life. He is the source of living water. He is the one that is able to provide salvation. That's in verse 37, though I've paraphrased the essence of it. And he has also pointed out that those who believe on him, we've talked about belief this morning, we've had communion. Many of you have partaken of communion this morning, indicating that you have believed on him. And in verses 38 and 39, he dramatically pointed out how believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, though referring to it as a future event there, in the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament. And through the life of those who say they believe, there is not to be a little bit of a stream here and there. 
but living waters are to overflow through the life that is evident to everyone around, whether they like it or not. It should be obvious. And the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the context. He's been presenting them with divine truth, that which is hard to understand in this sense because he's giving them divine truth regarding salvation, which the natural man, first of all, does not want to receive. Secondly, his disciples are there, and they're confronted with divine truth as to who they really are following and whether or not their lives are really producing what they should be producing. And I would say by application, before we just shut this thing down right away and think about just the unsaved, we ought to be thinking about it as believers because every time you have devotions, every time you open up the word of God or hear it, you are doing one of the same things that is going on in this text. We all do. We all do. And we need to realize the lot of application. Let's look at the reactions of his audience. Not everyone is positive. And I encourage you, by the way, why do you think he puts this in the text? Why do you think we're going to see it over and over again? I'll give you one reason for those of you that are faithful in witnessing. Sometimes we get discouraged when other people don't come to believe. Sometimes we get discouraged when they don't listen to us. We ought not to be. Because not everyone will act in a positive or react in a positive way to the things that you have to say, especially if it's rightly divided. And we see that in the context. Some of them in the context, jumping right into it, were challenged. That's verses 40 to 44. And because of time's sake and communion this morning, I won't reread those verses, but I'd like you to look at them because I'll be referring to them. I put that down as these are people that were challenged. This is the multitudes. We know that right from verse 40. What do you mean the multitudes? Remember, we've given you different groups. Keep it in its context because we're going to come to the offices in just a moment. These, this multitude were people that had come from all different areas down to this area to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They came together to the city. I would say that these people are thinkers. They are ready to think. They're ready to listen. They're ready to respond. They don't directly shut it out. We'll get to that in a few minutes. There are those. It is true of me sometimes. It is true of some in this audience, and I have no idea who you might be. It is always true every time the Word of God is preached. Some people are shut out to it right away. That is not the case right away, the first ones that we see. They're challenged. They're thinking. They're listening to some extent. And they will be somewhat affected by what is said. And it falls into four groups in this first category. There is the first group found in verse 40. And what is it? They say certainly this is the prophets in verse 40. At least they were looking. These people are open enough in that they were looking for what? A prophet. A prophet which was one like Moses. These were people who had some Bible knowledge. These were people who were alert. They had come to Jerusalem to worship. They were aware that a prophet needed to come. Would you turn with me back in John's account to John chapter 1? We've seen this before. This is in reference to John the Baptist, and it's going to be relevant to our text. In John chapter 1, verse 21, they asked this of John the Baptist, remember? They asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. And then what did they say? Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They had Bible knowledge. They were looking for this. Believe it or not, in case you forgot, 
This was used in reference to Jesus Christ. Go to chapter 6 of John. Chapter 6. Again, why we want to study in the context and why you want to go with the flow of a book. Remember verse 14. When therefore the people saw the sign, this is the feeding of the 5,000 in the context, which he had performed, they said what? This is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. So they had some Bible knowledge. What were they referring to? For time's sake, but I would like you to listen to it. If you want to turn, that's fine. But Deuteronomy 18 is where it comes from. And I'd like to read the verses. There's only a few of them that I want to point out to you. But listen to what it said. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, it said this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. From among you, for your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they, shall, they have spoken well, and here it is. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, that is like Moses, and I will, listen, put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. They knew their Old Testament, at least these people. And they knew there was a prophet to come. So to their credit, they were looking to the scriptures. To their credit, they were trying to think and see, does this line up? And the first conclusion is that this is the prophet. So they are not scripturally illiterate. They had observed his miracles. They had heard his teachings. And it appeared to them that this one that's in their present is maybe the one that's come from God. You remember in John chapter 3, I won't turn to that one, Nicodemus himself, who's in our context today, said that. We've watched what's happened, and we've heard some things, and we know that no man could do this unless he came from God. So at least there's a good portion that's observing some positive things. They're not there yet, but at least they're observing some positive things. In chapter 7, in our text, in verse 46, which we'll get to in a few moments, it says, never a man spoke the way this man speaks. So they're listening. This first category of people, they're listening and they respond to a prophet. By the way, Peter refers to this in Acts chapter 3. You can mark it down. I will not turn there. Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. And then Stephen, before he dies refers to it in Acts chapter 7, verse 37, in which both people identify that Jesus Christ specifically is the prophet. He is the one to fulfill Deuteronomy chapter 18. So in their speech right away, or in Peter's speech, and before Stephen dies, when he's bringing them under conviction, he says, you've been looking for the prophet, you know he's the one. Jesus Christ is the one. So some were convinced, at least that he was the prophet, by what? The miracle that he had done and the teaching that he had. And so what they were saying, by the way, so we understand it in context, because there's a little difference from verse 41, they were saying at least he's the forerunner. That's why they asked John. At least they're moving in the right direction. 
They're ready to receive, but they're not believers. Don't think for one moment that necessarily these people have trusted in Christ yet. They're questioning it, though. It's a good place to be. However, we come to a second group in verse 41. In verse 41, this second group out of the first category that I've given you, others were saying this is the Christ. Now, that's important for us because in the 21st century, we think automatically if he's the prophet, he's the Christ. And by the way, that's true. We think that way because we have Bible knowledge. They were looking at there was a possibility. Not everybody thought that the anointed one was the prophet. Some thought that the prophet to come would be the forerunner or the spokesman for God, but then the Messiah would come after that. And that's why you've got the distinction between verses 40 and 41. But some were saying that he's the Christ, that is the anointed one, not just the forerunner, but the Messiah. And he is. The Lord Jesus Christ is that. Earlier, they were, interestingly enough, go back to chapter 7, verse 13 for a second. I'll show you why. It's interesting because in verse 13 of chapter 7, it said, yet no one was speaking openly for fear of him, for fear of what? The Jews. Now, by the time you come to the end of the chapter and you come to the last day, you've moved from the middle to the last day, the people aren't afraid of the people, uh, aren't afraid of the leaders anymore. They're at least moving in the right direction, and they are now questioning, is this possibly the Messiah? When we hear the word of God and people listen to the word of God, some people will say, yeah, the, he, this guy's a little different. Others will say, could it be the Messiah? Could he be the one? Could he be the one to give us a right relationship with God? And in their mind, they don't care whether the, the leaders are there or they're not there. They turn around and they speak up and they say, is this the Christ? Is he the one that it could be? So we see a boldness. They've seen, they've heard, and they have tried to apply what they listen. And by the way, let me, by way of application, mention this. This is exactly why you do invite people to a one-on-one -on -one Bible study with you, a home Bible study, a woman's Bible study, a men's Bible study, or you open the Word of God to them, or you invite them to church and so forth. Why? So that they'd be hearing the word of God. Because when they were brought under the teaching of Christ, when they were brought under what God has to say, it brought conviction, at least to cause them to think. And these people get it. They were going in the right direction. They're close. They came and they drank. In, in verse 40, I would say, using the context that we've seen, Remember the Lord said, come and drink if you thirst? Well, in verse 40, they're coming. In verse 41, they're ready to drink. In what sense? They're ready to say, this is the Messiah. Not just the possible spokesman for God, but the Messiah himself. The word of God is falling, if you will, on good soil. Their heart is being convicted, and with their mouth, they're ready to conf confess. Sounds like Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And if these are true believers, and the context doesn't fully explain all of it to us, but if they are, they're babes, babes in Christ. And what we find, though, is that some of them continue to question. And as we go on in verse 41, it says, still others, all in that first category I gave you. But now we have still others who are saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? They're questioning. They're not so quick to trust in the Messiah. There are those who might be willing to jump and say, yeah, this is the Messiah when you 
give the gospel. Oh, yes, they'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's some that we're not ready to do that. And when you look at verse 42, you find out that they also knew the scriptures. And they knew that David was to be the line through which Jesus Christ came and also that he was to be born in Bethlehem. They knew some of the scriptures. And by the way, they were right. They were right. And by the way, in verse 41, it expects a no answer just so you're aware of it. What was the problem? They failed to do what we've been talking about. What was that? To judge righteous judgment. That has application everywhere in life. What do you mean, Pastor Dan? Well, they raised the right question. They knew the scripture, and they stopped right there. Why? They knew what the scriptures said. Yes, it is true he had to come through David. Yes, it is true he had to be born in Bethlehem. And by the way, it happened. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we find out the genealogy of Jesus Christ who was of the line of David. When you move, you find out that Micah said he had to be born in Bethlehem. When you move from Matthew chapter 1, 1 to chapter 2, 1, you find out in chapter 2, the very first verse, that it says, and the child was born in Bethlehem. They didn't research. They knew Bible. They had some verses in their mind but they were not ready to take it further. They didn't accept the challenge that was before them and try to find out. I put this, this type of people in this category, religiously informed, but not willing to check things out for themselves. They have got their mind set in a direction. They've got some religion, but they haven't taken the time to research. If they had researched, they would have find out, found out, yes, that scripture is true, but this one fulfills it. They just simply associated him, as the leaders will in a moment, with the fact that he's from Galilee and didn't do any further research. And so you got people that are saying, well, they'll come to the Christ, and some saying it can't be him because they have limited Bible knowledge. Maybe, take this in the right context, they had a written, written excuse me, or read a lot of commentaries. And rather than check things out for themselves, how many times have you done that? How many times have I done that? You read something, you read a commentary, you read the footnote, and already you're convinced. You never go back and check things out for yourself. Or you only check their references, and it makes sense, so you don't check it out any further. That's what you've got here. You've got a situation where they didn't go deeper as they should have. And the fourth group in this category, verse 44, is definitely non-believers who wanted to seize him. They were willing even to be hostile. They were ready to put pressure on other believers. That's what you find in verse 44. However, God had prevented them, and I think the pressure of other believers or others who were questioning didn't allow them, as we've seen in the context. Thus, there's a division in the multitude. There will always be a division when you present the word of God. I'm not naive. I go in here week after week and I present the word of God and I'll tell you what happens. And it's going to happen all the time. And I'm trying to encourage you if you're a teacher, by the way. There'll be people that'll come out and say, praise the Lord, wonderful message, Pastor Dan, it was great. There's others who have slept through the message. There's others who have turned around and come out and say, well, I don't agree with what you said on this. I don't agree with what you said on that and so forth. It's always going to happen. I'm not discouraged by that, but neither should you when you're witnessing. 
Don't think every time you witness, somebody's going to say, boy, that's it. i got to trust Christ. Boy, that's it. You know, he's got to be. Or that they won't turn around and say to you, well, I don't know, it doesn't line up with this, and they don't go check things out. That happens all the time. Why? Christ came to bring divisions. In Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53, we've been there before, so I won't go there right now. What happened in that particular passage is the Lord said that he didn't come to give peace. He came to cause division, and that does not make us comfortable, especially when he turns around and says, husbands will be against wives, wives against husbands, children against mothers against daughters, daughters against mothers, and we see that and we say, whoa. But you know what? The bottom line is you have to make a choice because if you're not willing to follow Christ, you're not worthy to follow him at all, first, above everything else. And so every time the word of God is rightly divided, you will get divisions like that. Some come under conviction quickly, verses 45 and 46. What you've got here is the officers. Now, according to verse 32, they were there to arrest. And I believe they had arrest warrants given to them, if you will. These are the temple guards. They're the police. I never spent any time on that before, though we had it in my notes. It's just a matter of getting to it. These are the temple guards. These are the police. They failed to do their job. Why? Because they came back without Jesus. You find that. Why didn't you bring them, verse 45? They didn't do the job that they were sent out to do. They knew who they had to arrest. They knew they had the authority to do it. Why didn't they do it? I think it's clear from the context, verses 45 and 46. They were under conviction. They were under conviction and couldn't do it. You see, there'd be a division sometimes, and sometimes people are under conviction, and that's their own testimony in verse 46. Basically, they say this. No human being has ever spoken like this. None. And you know why? Because he's not a mere human being, by the way. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is fully God, fully man. And when confronted with the word of God, when confronted with it rightly divided from the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, they were brought under conviction. And you will find, that's where Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 comes in. The word of God is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. That's why what we need to do is give the word of God. I don't care what area it is, teaching children, teaching your spouse, teaching somebody else, bringing it to the unsaved. You can rationalize things all you want, and they're not going to go anywhere. You confront them with the word of God in purity, rightly divided, and God will use it. God will use it, even to these guards who had authority to take him, even to these guards who knew who they were supposed to take. They couldn't do it. And you say, well, it's because of the crowd around. Well, I think there's a practical application of that in verse 43. But it was more than that. These men, according to their own testimony, were brought under conviction. Even, listen, even the enemies of Christ cannot overcome his word. Pilate, remember him? I find no fault with him. Pilate's wife, the guards. And here, the soldiers, the, the police officers, if you will, of the temple that are supposed to come and arrest him, heard him speak, and they were brought under conviction. Not saved, not willing to trust, but brought under conviction. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, by the way. Remember, coming is not enough. 
Conviction is not enough. And I want to give a little application to here, believers, in case you again move away from the message. Reading your Bible and seeing things that pertain to your life or being challenged in a Sunday school class or being challenged from the pulpit and coming to it and saying yes and even being brought into conviction is not enough. What's important is that you give into it. These officers failed. They were brought under conviction, yes, but they didn't apply. They didn't, if you will, drink. They didn't apply it to their life. How many times, fellow believers, do we go in our devotions, read the word of God, and walk away? Walk away. We don't apply it. Sometimes we're even brought under conviction. We hold on to sin. Sometimes we're brought under conviction about things that we should change, but we're stubborn and we don't want to. It happens to every one of us. That's why I say when we're confronted with the word of God, we all face it. But here, this group of unbelievers, some were thinking, but they hadn't come. They saw it as a prophet. Some were thinking and were even to the extent that sorry he was a Christ, and maybe some of those believed. I know in time, there are a number of them that are going to believe. Some were knowledgeable of the word of God and they knew it was supposed to be, but they didn't study it. Some were brought into conviction like these offices, but they didn't come to it. And then we got the group in verses 47 to 49. Some of them were absolutely closed. And if you want to see pride working at its best, it's right here. Verses 47 to 49. You can look at it. It's the group of leaders, the Jews again, the Pharisees. And what happened? They have a charge that they bring in verse 47. You have not also been led astray, have you? They're charging the officers. They were spiritually and doctrinally, according to the Pharisees, inept. They were saying, you just missed it. When in reality, who were the ones that were deceived? The Pharisees. But they had their mindset. They literally accused the officers, who, by the way, were in the Levitical area of service, of being uneducated. That's what it amounted to. You don't know what you're talking about. They were accusing them of that. Spiritually ineptness. Why? Because of the pride. Look at verse 48. We would have recognized the Messiah if he came. I'm paraphrasing it. You look at it. We haven't believed, have we? There's no Pharisee that's falling into this category. What's the matter with you people? You know, we can apply, first of all, that to offices, pastors, elders, people with Bible degrees. It can very easily happen to us where we can turn around and not have our ears open to the word of God. And because we think we know better. But don't you think for one moment it can't happen to you in the pew? where you have your mindset on your category, on the thing that you want to do, and you've read enough scripture to be dangerous. And because of that, what happens, somebody comes along with truth, and you start accusing them of they don't know what they're talking about. It's very dangerous. Very dangerous. We would never fall for this. We would know better. They were beyond being deceived, really. There is not a one of us that are beyond being deceived. 
I don't care how long you've been coming to Fellowship Bible Church. I don't care how much I study. Any one of us can be deceived if we're not careful. And the minute pride comes in, we're in trouble. We are in trouble. They had a lack of respect even for the people. It's obvious. This multitude, look at a verse 49. These ordinary people, guess who God saves, by the way? Ordinary people. In fact, that's worth looking at before we leave this today. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You could quote it for me, probably. The Lord Jesus Christ was in the midst of the leaders, the midst of the officers, the midst of the town folk, the midst of the multitudes. They had come there to celebrate and be involved in a religious holiday, just like we come to Christmas. And as we move toward Christmas, just think about that in relationship to it. They come together and they celebrate and sing Christmas carols. They quote Bible verses. How many are going to do that this month? and not come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Either because they're so fixed in their thinking or so closed to what the truth is. And even when brought under conviction by a message or a song that's sung like something like the Hallelujah Chorus and the convicting words and people will sing that and be brought under conviction and they still won't come. Nothing different that was here. It's a holiday. They were together. And you know what? Verse 26. But consider your calling of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. The Pharisees looked their nose down on the ordinary people. Down on them. God's in the business of saving ordinary, simple people. Verse 47. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise that is wise of this world. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. The bottom line, verse 29, that no man should boast before God. Things despised. If you're not aware of it, we are in a century whereby, you know how Christians are thought of, in case you didn't know this? Uneducated, non-thinkers who need a crutch to hold on to. That's the way the world looks at Christianity. You might not think that's true, but it is. I'm telling you. They think you're a fool, that you're just not thinking enough. I tell the kids all the time, I believe the, the best Christian is the best thinker. Why? Because he thinks things through. And God wants us to know. But they look down. The world looks down on Christians. They need a crutch to hold on to. And they're so proud that they can't receive the word of God. Don't move, don't move away from the application either. We can be so proud even in our own thinking that we move away and don't allow the word of God to penetrate our own hearts. These people were close to what, the God, what God had to say. How are you when you come to Sunday morning services? And that's not because I'm preaching. Is your mind already set and closed? When you go to your devotions in the morning, when you go to a Bible study, is your mind closed to some things already so that when you hear some things, if it's contrary to you, it's shut out automatically? That's what happened to this group. That's what happens, and it happens all the time. God uses the word of God to bring conviction, and we need to be ready. You know the ironic thing? The leaders were casting judgment on themselves. They turned around and said, this people were accursed. Do you know who was really accursed? 
They were. They were. By the time you get to Matthew chapter 23, and you see the curses that are put on these leaders who thought they knew better. These people who thought they knew the word of God, and they didn't. They didn't. Some are curious enough. That's where Nicodemus comes in as we close it. Nicodemus is curious enough. By the way, we saw in chapter 3, and I believe rightly divided, that the Lord Jesus Christ specifically referred to Nicodemus as the teacher of the day. You're the one that people look up to the most. And he was able to speak up. I don't think he was a disciple yet. He does come to be. He was the leading teacher. But he appeals even to the way their law worked and their traditions, not just the word of God. He says, our law does not judge a man first. And what did they say? Check it out. No one comes from Galilee, does he? By the way, that's not a true statement. Do you know that Jonah came from Galilee? They are the ones that knew their Old Testament, right? Yeah, sure they did. They didn't even know where Jonah came from. He was a prophet. He came from that area. What was the one simple question that could have been asked? Anybody? That's an open discussion for those of you still awake. Where were you born? That's all they had to ask Jesus. Where were you born? Oh, I was born in Bethlehem. Oh. He didn't ask it. You know, you can come under, let me start with this. You can come under a message and hear the word of God and hear people say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but by me. You can hear people say that you've got to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and have all, you can fall in any one of these categories. Come under conviction. You can be opposed to it and shut it off. But all you got to do is investigate it. These leaders didn't investigate. Pick up a Bible. Don't be a fool. Don't be a foolish person in that pew right now and say, I can't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. Read it for yourself. Research it. All they had to ask of Jesus is, where were you born? They assumed because his ministry was in Galilee that he was a Galilean born in Galilee. If they had even checked their records, they would have found out that he was born in Bethlehem. They wouldn't do it. They were curious, but not curious enough. Others were curious and checked it out. We need to investigate the word of God. If you're here without Christ, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the prophet that was to come. He was born in Bethlehem, as Micah 5.2 said he should have been. He was born on the line of David, as both Samuel and Chronicles pointed out had to be. But they didn't check it out. You have no hope for salvation beyond the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only place that salvation can be found. And that's salvation from your sin. That's salvation from eternal separation from God so that you can be in his presence, so that you can have your sin forgiven. And fellow believer, just let me remind you again, every time the word of God is open, we are challenged. We are challenged to do what it says. So what are we to do? I think that responsive reading is where I want to wrap it up with the believers. Don't be afraid of people's faces. 
Don't be afraid of what they might think by application out of that passage. Just go and preach the gospel. When you've got to confront believers, just go and give them the word of God. If they hate you, if they uh, threaten you or whatever, don't worry about it. Leave it with God. God will only keep us accountable for giving the message, not for the results. We have to leave that with God. Not everyone believed on him. I didn't get to it this morning, but we will see it eventually. But I can tell you now, in chapter 12, even many of the leaders came to believe on Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ just kept confronting them with truth, confronting them with truth, confronting them with truth, who he is, and he demonstrated it. Keep on keeping on and let the Lord do the saving. Let the Lord do the changing. You and I cannot change anyone, but the word of God can. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you for the communion portion of the service this morning to remind us of the sacrifice of Christ. I thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, came into the midst of his people, presented who he was, and he just left the results. Some were curious. Some were convicted. Some were closed-minded. But, Father, he just left that with you. And I pray that we just do the same when we present the word of God, that we realize not everybody will respond in a positive way. But help us to leave the results with you and do our job of presenting the word. But help us also to examine our own lives. How do we react? How do I react when we read the word of God? Do we come with our own religious background and religious thinking closed to even truths that might change our lives as you through sanctification work in our lives day by day? Do we have our own arguments? Do we not research what we should? Help us, Father, to be willing to be open as our eyes uh, can see. For we know in your eyes we are open totally to you. You know the way we think. You know the way we apply even scripture. You know the way we resist. Help us, Father, to humbly come before you. To allow the Spirit of God to work in our life so that we can be better tools for the Master's use. Thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name.